I think the approach to minor characters is to treat them as though they are major characters in their own mind, because nobody wants to be treated like a minor character. Um, in, and if in real life, if somebody does treat you like a minor character in the big drama of their life, it, we resent it very much. What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of What Were You Thinking? Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to invite you to check out a couple of things. Number one, my Substack. It's a weekly newsletter that lands in your inbox every Sunday morning with some deep thoughts and considerations. You know what? It's just a look inside my head and my world. And it's a free subscription. There's also a paid version if you are interested in supporting me and my writing. And you can check out the newsletter at danagoldstein.substack.com. The other thing I invite you to check out is my website. Head over to danagoldstein.ca because I just added a tab on the podcast page for all the books from all the authors that I have interviewed over the years. Now that we're in season four, I thought, hmm, I should probably make all these books easy to find. And yes, this is an affiliate link, so I will get a bit of a kickback from Amazon for every book you purchase from that page on my website. That's all the business I have for you today. I am going to introduce you to Barbara Jones Scott, author of The Taste of Hunger. This episode starts as a bit of a ramble because Barbara had a computer issue and then we started talking about laptops and MacBook Airs and I just decided to leave it all in because it was kind of fun and interesting and she sort of segued right into one of the things I was wanting to ask her about and it just felt really awkward for me to edit it and try to piece it all back together. So I just let it be. I'm just going to read the blurb here from Freehand Books about the taste of hunger. A family saga about Ukrainian immigrants in the early 20th century, the power of desire, Baba Yaga fairy tales, and a moment that changes everything. In Saskatchewan in the late 1920s, a 15-year-old Ukrainian immigrant named Olena is forced into marriage with Taras, a man twice her age who wants her even though she has refused him. Stuck in a hard scrabble life and with a husband she despises, starved for a life of her own choosing, at every turn, Olena rebels against her husband and her fate. As Olena and Taras drag everyone around them into the maelstrom that is their marriage, they set off a chain of turbulent events whose aftershocks reverberate through generations. Without further ado, here's Barbara Scott, author of The Taste of Hunger. I uh, treated myself to a MacBook Air, which is like, oh, I just love yeah. that I could just like carry it so that I just, I love the portability of oh, the yeah, MacBook Oh yeah, that's Air. what I'm thinking of getting is the, yeah. is the air um yeah for the yeah. for that for us who are writers it's like an appendage and yeah. it needs to not have a lot of external weight because we are carrying internal weight <laughs> there's yeah. a good writing metaphor <laughs> oh good. yeah yeah <laughs> well I one of the one of the aspects of my writing practice is that I uh 
I'm a musician in a former life. And um, so I always have a guitar with me and I bought a little journey guitar to take on writing retreats. And it is a guitar that comes apart. You can take the neck off and it fits. And then the body and the neck fit into a backpack sized um, total uh, within the parameters of carry on luggage. And it has um, a folder at the front, a zipped folder at the front that I can slip that laptop into just. But the thing is, then it weighs so much. It's like you stick it on your back and you just feel like, oh my God, I can't, uh, I can barely move. But yeah, I'm glad we kind of just like jumped in full tilt to this interview. But I'm curious because I had heard you say in another interview that you always take a guitar with you. And I was like, that's really cool. And, you know, someone, uh, oh, you know, who was Wakefield Brewster once oh. said that, um, bring all your art into the room with you. Yes. Oh, lovely. Actually. And I, so I was just in the, in July, last July, uh, I was actually in a performance with Wakefield Brewster of, uh, written by some very good friends of mine, as well as others. It was called, um, the Many Mothers Project. Uh, and um, so it was seven women um, who presented individual plays and I provided the music for one of the plays. Um, so, and Wakefield Brewster was uh, an actor in uh, several of the different plays. So I've met him and he's a, he's a delightful man. Okay, I'm popping in with a really early aside because I want to introduce you to Wakefield Brewster. He is a spoken word poet and he was the poet laureate for Calgary from 2022 to 2024. I could gush for hours about this man and his poetry. It is an art form, it is a performance, and it changes the way that you think. I'm going to post a link in the show notes to one of his recent poetry readings, and I will warn you, you will go down a rabbit hole for a few hours. That's how engaging he is. And I absolutely agree with that, that uh, for me, writing is a very intensive process. And so uh, sometimes if I just get to a point where I just have too much going on in my brain and my heart, um, then I can go to music and it's very cathartic. Uh, so, and this is, oh, you can't see it on the video. I See my my messy office and my guitar is always right within reach so yeah it's so different from a lot of writers who will get up and go for a walk or uh you know distract themselves with mundane tasks like for me it's like hand washing dishes or other household chores that pull me away from the writing but it makes so much sense to go to the music what happens in your brain when when you switch to music when you're at a difficult point in the writing well I think what happens is people have asked um why I don't write songs and I used to many many years ago um when before I discovered that really I didn't have enough space so I would write songs and I needed more space so then I moved to short stories and I needed more space and now I write novels and or I've written a novel and I'm working on another one and that's my space I love getting lost in there so what I love about um the music that I play and it's a very eclectic mix I've sometimes played jazz or uh, Joni Mitchell in all her phases and um just all kinds of songs that I love and it's a connection with another artist and so um I think it's almost a lost art covering other tunes not that I record these or anything but but it is 
quite wonderful to enter into somebody else's creative space and make it your own, uh, which is, it, it sounds like, it sounds like it's not connected, but it, it really is because that's how I feel uh, writing and reading works. Um, that the writer without a reader is there's the reader enters into that space to interpret and to bring their own creativity to the reading process, just as I bring my creativity to the writing process. So it is actually very intertwined for me. Yeah. Wonderful. I want to tell you that when I read The Taste of Hunger, I immediately, when I was done, went to go look for your backlist because I it read like somebody who has 15 novels under their belt. Oh. It's so perfectly crafted, Barbara. And I just, I want to pick apart like how you got there from being a musician and an instructor and an editor and a short story writer and uh, an article writer and now a novelist. Like, how do you go from A to Z <laughs> like that in one novel? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much. And that that was what I was aiming at, a, com a kind of complexity in the structure and in the characters um, and that feeling that every single character in that book is the center of their lives. Like they, um, so, and, and that takes, it does take a lot of time and a lot of delving into the different people um, so it, it did take a while. It also took a fair bit of therapy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the book, I, I, when I brought out The Quick, which was my collection of short stories, and that came out in 1999. Um, and I know a lot of people, when they bring out their first book, there's this sense of triumph. Well, for me, there was a sense of joy, but then it was immediately followed by enormous anxiety, enormous anxiety. Um, I... I just felt so exposed to the world. Um, the way I was raised, you weren't supposed to do that. Uh, so I felt like I had transgressed all these unspoken family rules. It was very, and whether, I, don't, I mean, my parents are dead now. I, they probably would totally disagree with me on this, but that's my that was my experience. And uh, so I was just terrified. I was terrified of the good. So when it uh, it won a couple of awards and, yep. and when it did, I, I, I was just, I mean, I was happy, but I was also devastated. It's a very hard thing to explain. So um, I spent a, a number of years, I think, just kind of in hiding. I was working on the novel, um, but really only in fits and starts. And then I, I was doing other creative work at the time. So editing was a, a real joy. I loved editing. But then I realized, and also teaching creative writing, I, I loved that as well. But I also realized eventually that I wasn't getting any younger and it was taking the same energy for me. It takes the same energy that writing takes. And so in the end um, I had in two, in two years in a row, I had um, an author who I'd edited for freehand uh, go to the, their book was shortlisted for the Amazon first novel award. And the second time I actually went to the celebration, which was very nice. And, and, um, but I realized I, not so much that I wanted to uh, win any awards or anything like that, but I realized I wanted to be one of the authors, not one of the editors. Everybody was allowed to take their editor, so that was very nice. But I, I just thought, much as I loved editing, I had to make a clear decision. And for me, that was that was the decision that had to be made, was 
um, to abandon editing. And I really have. It was very difficult at first because there were people who I dearly loved and who I really loved editing who were asking if I would. And I had to say, I'm so sorry, but if I don't make this rule now, I will never finish this book. Um, and so I think that was a, for me, it was a, an allocation of energy. That was the biggest decision. So, and once I did that, it's not that it became easier, um, but I, I was more focused uh, because before what would happen is when I was editing, it would, you know, you would put aside two months for this particular book. And then I try to put two months aside for my own work. Well, the problem is when you write a book like The Taste of Hunger, which is quite dark. I mean, uh, it has moments that are very dreadful. I and <laughs> So it's not the easiest book in the world to think, yeah, let's go. And so it, it took a while to, to enter that deep space that I needed. And then I'd have to come out of it within weeks to work on the next editing project. So it really was an allocation of, of energy. And the other thing that happened was that um, I had submitted it to an agent who in a, in a much earlier form, um, and she just gave me the best advice. Uh, she didn't actually end up taking the book, but, it, but she said that um, it read as though there was a frame story that I, so it was initially, it was two, I had to cut two thirds of it <laughs> because I had three different uh, timelines, um, three different focuses. And so she said that the, particularly the one dominant, the 1980s timeline, read like a frame story, a story that I had to write in order to be able to write the real story, which is the one that is actually now in the book. It's the story of Taras and Oleta and their children and, and all the fallout from that dreadful first step. Um, so that was uh, tremendously helpful, except that then I had to, now that I had taken out so much of the material, I had to flesh out what was left. And, uh, and actually that was a joy too, because I realized, well, I, I think the reason that everybody loved Taras and Elena's line so much was that that was my favorite one. So I got to spend more time with the characters and their daughters and uh, it, it really was very helpful. Yeah. Did you, uh, was the narrative always so heavy and dark? Um, yes. Well, actually the, the, especially Taras's and Elena's, because I just, um, that story, it, it starts from uh, a true story in my own family. So just before she died, my grandmother told me that she had never wanted to be married to my grandfather. She'd wanted to go to school. She never got past grade six, but they were so poor. Her family was so poor that she basically got married off to a man who was twice her age. And when she told me this, um, there was such bitterness in her voice and in her face. Now, she was 84 years old. She left him when she was 40, and she moved in with a man 20 years her junior and lived with him until her death. So she had been married twice as long to a man of her choosing uh, than as she had been married to my grandfather, but yet that bitterness was there. And I thought, you know, I'm quite curious about the fallout of that in a family. Uh, and and that anger, I was very curious about that anger. And then I was um, coincidentally a, a year or so later, I was we, I was driving with my mom through Saskatchewan, and we heard a CBC radio program in which a number of women told exactly the same story, and they had exactly that same 
bitterness in their voices. I could, I just, um, and that's when I thought, okay, this is something you really have to, I have to, for my own satisfaction, puzzle out and see how that would work. Um, and then I, the other true thing in this story is that my mother did spend um, seven years in Fort San with tuberculosis. The Fort Capel Sanatorium, which was nicknamed Fort San, was the province of Saskatchewan's biggest sanatorium for tuberculosis patients. It operated from 1917 to 1971, and then it switched hands and became an art center, and then it switched hands again and became a conference center, and it was ultimately demolished in 2017 after sitting deserted since 2004. Rumor has it there were many ghosts roaming the halls. Of course there were. What sanatorium doesn't have ghosts? And she was uh, never an easy woman with affections. Um, She was a very generous woman, but she was not um, a hugging kind of a woman or uh, she had tremendous friendships. But so she was a very complex person. and, And I thought, well, this is interesting to me. How would it be? And I'm not saying that. So June is her own person. June is herself. Absolutely. But I did want to think about how a young woman who has been raised in an unhappy family where the parents are unhappily married and then is in her uh, teen years is raised by an institution. How on earth would that young woman learn how to love, like how to be uh, a loving fam, a person within a loving family. So, uh, and that, but that's, so the question, the answer to that question actually d- doesn't get answered in this book because that was part of what had to go. <laughs> it was too bad. But, um, but I thought, well, you know, maybe June will have her own. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of material that was culled. So, yeah, you, you sort of have to hang on to these things because you never know, right? They might spin off into a, different novel altogether exactly yeah, yeah. um but I yeah, want so- an answer to your question yes it was always dark because it just struck me as such a horrible way to start you know at 15 years old um and my I mean my grandmother I uh, was a very very strong person she was in no way beaten down by those circumstances and my grandfather um I did not know him terribly well but he was a um he was an affectionate man. Um, so it was, but I just thought, oh, I can't see anything good coming of this. You know, like, uh, not that it was as dark in my family as it ended up for Taras and Elena, mind you, but, um, but it was still uneasiness, I think. Is there a part of the novel where you finished writing either first draft or 10th draft, however many there were, uh, where you just sort of, you finished the scene and you thought, wow, that's good. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, yes, there was. And people kept telling me, no, you should not put that in the novel. It should not. What is it doing there? It's the beautiful scene. And it's one of my favorite ones in the book because it is one of the bright spots in the book. And it's the scene where June remembers going skating with her family. And it's uh, it's actually based on uh, something that happened to me. My husband and I went out skating on, um, oh, is it Spray Lakes or Lake Kananaskis? Anyway, in the Kananaskis. And 
it, the lake had frozen absolutely clear before there was any snowfall. Mm -hmm. And it really did look like that. You skated on it and you felt like you were skating on water. It was just the most astounding experience. And I had to keep running back and writing down details of the, of what I'd seen. And, um, and I loved that scene and, but people were right. It was absolutely the wrong, it, it, like what I finally figured out was it was just in the wrong place. I gave it to June when she first arrived in the sand and there was really no reason for it to be there until I realized, no, uh, this lovely doctor of hers asks her to go back to some place where she's been happy. And for June, you know, in her life, there have not been all that many wonderful moments. And so this was it. And, and so when I found, and I loved the writing of it initially, which was ages before I finished a complete draft of the book. But when I found the right spot for it, that was a moment where I just thought, yes, I've got it. And not only that, then it gave me a beautiful uh, metaphor for when June has a relapse and she's under, under glass, like the princesses that she reads about, but she's also under ice. Anyway, I was just, so yes, there are moments that you just think, oh, I'm so happy which doesn't happen often in my writing life. <laughs> like most of us. Um, yeah. what, one of the things I really liked about The Taste of Hunger was the roving point of view. And I, I will say this because I, my current work in progress, I started to write from four POVs and halfway through the manuscript, literally halfway, I realized two things. One, that there was one character who, above all, had the most interesting arc and it needed to be her POV. And number two, that I really don't have the chops to do a multi-POV. Like, I think for a first novel, Barbara, it's such a huge leap to take. Was it all, did you always know it was going to have like these roving POVs? Well, actually... Initially, it was going to have even more. And, and thank God, I decided, well, I didn't have the chops for that. So initially, it was going to be, I'd found this wonderful um, his, historical book uh, about, the, well, it's several books. In the 70s, there was a big push to, to finance small communities to write their own histories. And so they, off, they would have all these people contributing to the history of the town or the area. And a lot of them had no clue about what history was. So it was really fascinating. Well, I mean, or at least they didn't have an idea of a, a history book. So there would be some people just submitted the prices of tools in 1918. And some people wrote absolutely beautifully poetic things about a threshing machine. Like it was just, it was so interesting. And I wanted to write a whole bunch of points of view with everything sort of dropping down um, to Olena and Taras and June. And, and then what I realized, the story just got hijacked by, uh, by Taras and Olena. And so uh, that became more my focus. But I did, it always had to have all these points of view because there is no one real protagonist in the book. There isn't, what I really wanted was, and, and one of the best responses I, to the book that I got was somebody who said, she found herself rooting for every single one of the characters, even though it meant that if Taras gets what he wants, Olena doesn't get what she wants. And if, so it just, um, which just strikes me as life, you know, it, it, uh, it's how, how we are in life. 
that um and i i do think so if if i talk for a second about this is the editor coming up but if i talk about your book what i will what i would say is it will probably be so much stronger because all of those you might not be devoting um space to the point of view within the actual text but you will have learned so much and you will have learned so much about your main character uh and this is i, I think i said this in an, another interview someplace but um, <clears throat> I think the approach to minor characters is to treat them as though they are major characters in their own mind, because nobody wants to be treated like a minor character. Um, in, and if in real life, if somebody does treat you like a minor character in the big drama of their life, it, we resent it very much. So for me, if you enter and sometimes the best lines come out of minor characters as they are as they are looking with very skeptical eyes at the protagonist. Um, so you can still utilize all that fully fleshed out character without them having their own point of view. But writing from their point of view, I think is a fabulous thing to do. How do you decide when to switch? Like from between chapter to chapter? Well, um, I think a lot of it just seemed very organic to me. It was, um, so we see Taras, we see his obsession with uh, Olena begin. We see her reluctance all from his point of view. And then it seemed to me that, boy, do we ever need to figure out what she is feeling inside. So when they leave for the homestead, then we enter her point of view um, and get a sense of how she's feeling about her family, about this man. Um, <clears throat> and then I think we stay pretty much in her point of view until she gives birth uh, and then switch very briefly to Taras's because I think you really do need to find out how he feels about his daughter. So, and how she feels about her daughter. And so it, it becomes more complicated. And so then it seemed like a very natural thing to enter June's point of view because um, I brought her on stage. And so it really is, um, it was, it was that it, it didn't feel the only structural, <clears throat> excuse me, the only structural thing that had to be carefully considered was uh, when I would be able to enter into uh, Marie's point of view. So, and I won't say too much about that because of the, yeah. but, but, um, and also how to handle the structure of fair night. And so that was the only time when I had to really start manipulating like, the time frame of the novel. So it, it follows pretty much a chronology until that point. And then the chronology is disrupted. So um, yeah, I think that was mostly how the point of view got settled. And you mentioned earlier that uh, some of the feedback you got was that uh, from a reader was that they were rooting for everybody regardless of, of their choices. And I'm glad you said that because I wanted to bring that up, that it was, again, so wonderfully crafted that I found myself cheering on Elena, even when she was not making the best choices. And no. same with Taurus, when, even when he wasn't acting honorably. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, I'm so glad because it seemed to me, well, it does seem to me that the task of the novelist is to love all the characters even when they do the most appalling things and and people do appalling things in this book it's but but i think um 
you know, we talk about, a, a lot about compassion and, and I think compassion is stretched uh, and should be stretched. It's when it's people who are doing dreadful things who most need you to understand why they did the dreadful things. Now, I'm still, um, I'm not advocating for <laughs> people who do appalling things should just be able to run roughshod over everybody else. It's not that. It's just that um, I could I could so clearly understand Taras, who is thwarted on, on every front. You know, he's he wants to be successful with homesteading and that's not working out. He wants to be loved in his home life and that's not working out. And then he comes to this country thinking that he's going to be like a Cossack and he's going to be, you know, in on the land and and uh, being brave and and he's treated like a joke or worse, you know. So I thought I I kind of get we we sort of expect people who are being downtrodden to behave nobly. And I think why why would you? <laughs> I think of the times that I've done things that I'm ashamed of, and it hasn't been you know when I've been feeling noble it's been it's been when people have treated me badly and 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 you just have this urge to react in kind not that I I mean I think that's mostly in me a, a mental thing you know where I go back over and over I should have said this I should have said this um but I really did have that feeling with all these characters is I just felt so powerfully sad for them um and yet they are the people they are they uh you know, you put these people in a certain situation and then you watch how they react. And if you know them well enough, it's not that they take over the book. It's just that if you've created them in your mind clearly enough, you will see them and you will be sitting there thinking, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And then you'll watch them as they do it anyway. You know, And if they don't do it, if I make them not do it, I have violated their integrity as characters so it's a complex thing yeah do you map out the character arc <laughs> well i didn't um i learned a very important lesson um the way i write is uh, i write short sharp scenes or bits of dialogue or bits of description like everything's just that is the sharpest i can make it at the time so it doesn't fit any particular chronology and it, it was working fine until I started to knit the book together <laughs> I thought, okay so what you need to know is what precedes what if a precedes b then b must be informed by everything that happened in a but if b preceded a then a has to be informed by everything so you can't write these things in isolation they um, people have memories, you know, they walk into a scene and they remember what you said 30 pages ago. So in this uh, book that I'm working on now, I don't have an outline, but I am working. I, I am working very solidly on the chronology. And um, and I do because I think it is going to be focused pretty much on one character this time. I do have a pretty good idea of the arc of the character. Um, but that's only, honestly, it, it's almost by accident. It is because it came out of a short story that I wrote. And, and I thought, oh, I think these people need to be fleshed out more. I think I need to do a little bit more with the people. So, so as you were writing uh, The Taste of Hunger, did the characters drop any surprises on you? Like, sometimes oh, that happens, right? Like, they take over yeah. and we're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yes, they did. And and one of the one of the surprises was May, actually, uh, who was who occupied a very, very tiny role initially. And it was only later on that I realized, oh, I need her point of view. And she was just a delight to me. I mean, I hadn't um, I hadn't really imagined her beyond being a little toddler, you know, eating June's egg and and but she was such a sunny little character, you know, Um, so. She did. Uh, she was one of the delightful surprises in the book, uh, and not always in a. In a I mean, I loved her, but she is a bit shallow. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was a that was quite a lovely thing to be able to explore her. Yeah. It's these little things that make writing so much fun, and not oh. sometimes such a chore. Yes. Well, yes, that's true because you go and you slog and you slog, and then out of the blue something happens. And sometimes what happens is you slog and you slog and you think, oh my God, I'm going to have to toss all of this tomorrow. And then you go back and you realize, actually, there are little kernels of delightful things in here. So um, one of the things that I think is really important in the writing life is not to judge your writing based on how you felt about your writing. Your How you feel about your writing has absolutely no relevance. You can write something that you realize later is absolutely brilliant that you thought was absolute shite when you were putting it on the page. And then you can go back to something you thought, oh my God, this is so great. And realize, oh, it's purple prose. It's stereotypical writing, the character's flat, like, but you had such a great time, you know? (laughs) It's part part of the uh, evolutionary process. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, Was it always titled The Taste of Hunger? Yes, it pretty much was almost from the beginning Um, because I thought all of these characters, which is funny because even when I thought of it as um, uh, having many more characters, they were all driven by that hunger for something, Um, whether it was for uh, love from a partner or a a happy family life or... um, but the, but the interesting thing was it was never real hunger. Like nobody starves in this book. Uh, and even when they are poor, uh, they, they have enough to eat. It might not be, it, sometimes it's that haunch of venison that somebody leaves is, the, is all the meat they have for the year, but nobody starves. Um, well, except for uh, there's a reference to the Holodomor, the great hunger in Ukraine where people really did starve by the millions, but that is off stage. Um, so, it was always I was concerned with this desire that people feel that I have felt all my life um, for something I cannot name, you know, like, uh, and I think that's the human condition. And I think in, in many ways that the society we inhabit in North America does a disservice to that because we're offered so many things here. Um, you feel you desire something here, have a new shirt. Oh, here, buy this pot you know like or here take this trip so we're able to um mask that deep hunger whereas the characters in this book um they don't have a lot of extraneous material to mask that hunger so it was always that and that's why it's the taste of hunger um because you can't taste hunger and that's the whole the conundrum is that uh so there is there is something that moves beyond the capacity of the of the physical human body 
that we nonetheless feel very powerfully. So. How much research did you have to do for this book? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I wish I had, you know, it's funny. I read uh, uh, Suzette Meyer's wonderful, uh, The Night Porter. I hope I've got that right. Um, I always get the titles mixed up with books these days, but uh, the one that she won, everybody will know this book. Anyway, and that at the end, she she puts all of her sources, and I thought, oh, I should have thought to do that. But it, it I was doing the research over so many, like 10, 15 years, and so I had boxes and boxes, and I would I would lose I would lose the references, and I thought, oh, I should have been more more stringent, you know. Um, especially I was I did a book club meeting with some professors at. Uh, you you Sask University of Saskatoon and they were asking about my sources and I thought oh like I I went scouring through boxes and boxes of paper and so if I ever do another historical book I'm going to keep very careful track of my of my research material but it's also partly I think one of the reasons that I didn't uh, keep everything really organized is that I think when writing historical fiction you have to do those mountains of research and then you have to try to forget about it. Like you have to just stop thinking about it. Don't try to shoehorn everything, every little detail you found out into the book. Like try to let it all burble down into your uh, subconscious mind and then let the little details that you need kind of pop up as they're needed. Um, or sometimes there's just a happy accident. And one of those was uh, the Victory Red Lipstick. And yeah. I don't even... I was trying to find something else entirely and it popped up as as part of uh, a, an old magazine cover I found on the internet. And I thought, oh my God, this is like too brilliant. And it becomes this quite important image in the book, yeah. but it was that totally happy accident. Um, but I also think that those happy accidents happen when you've done a lot of, you've got that big bedrock of, of research and so that's when you know I need that you've got and also when you've when you've got the characters in your head and you know okay I know exactly who needs that lipstick and why so yeah those are those are also such delightful moments you know when you feel like the whole universe is conspiring to write your novel for you it's just here you can have this you know yeah you do four hours of deep research for one sentence that makes it into the book yeah, but I love research. Like um, somebody said, oh, well, you know, Margaret Atwood has an assistant to do her research for her. And I thought, well, good for her. But I I love doing research. I love noodling around and going down the blind alleys. And, and uh, you find out the most fascinating things, even if you can't use them. It's I think that's to me, it's one of the most wonderful things about the writing life is that you get to you get to follow all kinds of different obsessions, you know. And I I think that all these things that we research and read about sort of become part of our psyche. And I think that's how we make our characters so much richer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you know the only, but it can be distracting too. I thought I learned the, the square bracket method and that is where if I'm on a roll and I think, Oh, what would the apron have been made of? Would it have been gingham? Would it have been, you know, what, what would, and I just put square brackets, 
find out what material apron is made of and I just keep going because that's the other danger, especially with the internet. You know, I'm still old enough to remember when you had to go to a library. So you yeah. had to physically move yourself over there and it was a slog. And now it's so easy, which is wonderful. I mean, I love the internet, but it means that you can end up spending two hours researching one little tiny detail in a novel that has to eventually get written. <laughs> so yeah. And that's not including time to go to the card catalog to find the reference to the microfiche and then finding the microfiche yeah. and the microfilm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, today's I kids. A, I do have a kind of a, a nostalgia for that, I have to say. But there is a magic with physical, like real physical artifacts, I think, that you do have, you do get that sense uh, that, that a real human being had something to do with this, which I just don't get the, quite the same sense on the internet. How do you decide, like, I, I, I'm I, trying to remember from the Taste of Hunger, I don't think that there was any, like, obvious historical narrative in there. Like, there was no uh, telling that I can recall. So either you were really good at integrating it, or I've completely forgotten <laughs> that it was even in there. Gee, I hope it's the former. Everything was, um, because what I realized, so I loved reading, uh, I, I read diaries. and uh, So I've been, I've been reading Virginia Woolf's uh, diaries. And the first one is during the First World War. And it's surprising to me how often, or how, how often no, there's no reference to the war. There's domestic disputes, you know, she has a maid that's staying out too late or something, or little gossipy things about her friends. And, and I think, if I think about my own journal, I'm not doing major stretches of analysis on what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Israel and, and uh, the Gaza Strip. I'm, 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 I'm concerned with my daily life. And now I do think about those things. They are in, they are referenced in the book, but but the way I wanted the taste of hunger to read was almost as though you were reading it in that time frame. So there are not long stretches of historical mm -hmm. information because I just wanted these characters to be rooted in their own lives. And they're rooted in those lives so deeply um, that they don't have a lot of time to spend. Taras is the one who does the most mm -hmm. uh, and he does reference the uh, Holodomor and he does have communist leanings and there are, so there are glancing references. So um, when he talks about trying to go down to the, the Esteban strike, the minor strike, that is historically accurate. That strike did take place. They did um, start shooting people and there was a man who died because they wouldn't take him at the hospital. They had to time, get him to another hospital. So, um, so those details, are there so that if anybody got curious about them, they can go and find mm -hmm. more information about it. But it really was, um, this is a terrible thing to say, and I maybe this is only me and a judgment on me, but um, I think most of us are quite self-involved. You know, we, we are deeply concerned with the crises that are occurring in our own lives uh, and and that's what I wanted to be the impression of these people. Yeah. Yeah. That's not just you, by the way, that's human nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, where... the other thing, 
too about uh, so with um, June in the sand, all those details are true about that as well. So they're all very, but they're but they're presented through dialogue or um, so the doctor there is based on a, on the real doctor who was deeply admired in uh, at Fort Sand. Fort Sand really was a tuberculosis sanatorium. There really was that group of Saskatchewan travelers who before there was universal medication did their best to make TB care universal in Saskatchewan. So, um, but but again, it's it's done at the at the edges of the novel. Where were you when you found out you had a deal for the taste of hunger? Oh gosh, um, I was I think I was sitting right here <laughs> in my office, and uh, and Debbie Willis uh, let me know that. So the thing is, I have a history with Freehand Press. Um, I was an editor there for a, quite a, while, a long time. And um, so when I submitted the novel to them, I thought, you know, I I remembered how hard bringing out the quick had been. And I thought, I want, I so I didn't shop this around to more than that one agent. And actually, I by the time I got, the chance to send it to her again I thought you know I think I want to be with family um I I um I trust the people at Freehand absolutely I know their commitment to bringing out a really good book I know from experience that they uh, hire good editors um so I I just thought this is where I'd like to be and uh but, and so I submitted it to them and then the pandemic hit <laughs> Because the other thing I thought was, well, they know me well enough. They wouldn't leave me dangling for, you know, a year or two years. Well, the problem was the pandemic hit and everybody's mm -hmm. isolated and and you know, working with small children in the home and everything. So I started to get very anxious and think, oh, my God, it's a failure. It's a terrible book. And they don't know how to tell me it's a terrible book. So I sent it to two friends of mine uh, who hadn't seen, who weren't part of my writing buddy group. So they hadn't seen it. Uh, and and I asked them, is it awful? <laughs> Just please tell me if it's awful. And they both wrote back with really wonderful comments about, no, it wasn't awful, but also uh, with really good observations about why it wasn't awful. So that got me through. And then I think it was the end of September that they told me that they had taken the book. And uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful moment. And it's just been honestly a delightful experience. They gave me... They know how uh, much editing time I want. So they gave me a bunch of editing time and Debbie Willis was delightful and very, um, I'm a more in your face kind of an editor. She was a very gentle, but very persistent, sort of like water on a stone, you know, just saying, no, I don't think that's quite right. And have you thought about looking at this? And, um, and so, yeah, I credit her a great deal with particularly uh, May's character because she was um, kind of a, a late comer to the book. And How did it feel to be on the other side of that editing? Oh, piece? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm one of those kinds of writers who um, I, I, I love the rewriting process the best of all. Once I, once I, and, and <clears throat> once I figured out what I want the book to be, I absolutely can say, oh yeah, turf that. I have no, until that happens, I cling to everything. 
Um, but once I know what the book is supposed to be, I can get rid of my finest writing without a twinge of regret. It's just a, it's a wonderful process. Um, and the other thing that I like about it is that I also, once I know um, what I want, I can say, uh, no, I think that's, I don't think I can do it that way. So I, I'm I'll, like, you listen to the suggestion and then you think, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's not fitting, but I can do it this way. How about if we do it this way? And uh, so it's, it's, it's lovely to, it's a bit like the, what we said about the research. Once you've done all that work and you have a very clear idea of what you want, you will do anything for the person who suggests how to make it better, which Debbie did 99% of the time. And then that 1% where you think, um, like she wasn't overly keen on the prologue and the epilogue. And, and I think that, you know, they've kind of fallen out of favor, prologues and epilogues. But I wanted that uh, beginning <clears throat> because it sort of sets up that fairy tale feel at the beginning. And then Baba Yaga and Varvara as a kind of Baba Yaga figure become such an important thread through the book that I thought, no, I like that feeling of that we're in some kind of a strange place where the author can enter even into the even the point of view of a skeleton, you know, like go into that. Um, and so, and the other thing was um, because of this, because of the structure of the book, um, because there is a mystery kind of at the heart of it, uh, that prologue sets it up for that. Barbara, I want to thank you so much for your time. I love this book. I hugged it when I I finished it. It's just it's a it's a marvel and a wonderful story. And your characters are so infuriating and endearing at the same time. <laughs> oh, that's so perfect. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks again for coming on and being a guest on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can buy The Taste of Hunger wherever books are sold. And if you want to learn more about Barbara, visit her website at barbarajonescott.com. Once again, I'd like to invite you to check out my newsletter. It's danagoldstein.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can sign up for a paid subscription and get access to special content. Once again, thanks for giving me your ears. Thank you.